Tonight's Old Testament reading is from the book of Zechariah, chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, and that's on page 4 of your bulletins. Zechariah 4, 1 through 10. The angel of the Lord who talked with me came again and woke me, like a man who is wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on top of it, and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl, and the other is on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid the shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice, and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please join me as we pray? God, our prayer is that you might renew every person here. You are the creator of life. You are the recreator of our lives. There's no better place we could be, no more strategic place, more so no more strategic person than you to do this work. We come to you with empty hands, asking you to work by the promise of your grace. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as I just said, our topic is what does it mean to be renewed by God day to day? That's what we're spending some time looking at together. And for the last two weeks, we were camping out on this idea of renewing our minds because that's really where it starts. And so we spent a lot of time just trying to regain our appreciation and access of the fact that God has spoken to us. He's given us a powerful word by, way, by, by which we can be transformed. And for the next two weeks, I want to talk about power renewing power. This week, considering what it is, next week a bit more about how it works. Now, when you mention the word power in our day and age, it's a big topic. It's a controversial topic. Power that is something that operates on many, many levels in our day, on a societal level, 
We have bodies of power like political organizations. Uh, we have cultural organizations. We have corporations. We have religious bodies that have power. And then there's the, the case of powerlessness, people that would like access to perhaps power in some of those uh, groups but can't seem to get it. Maybe it's because the power is done in a backroom sort of way, or maybe the system seems so complex, just navigating it makes you tired. There's not only societal power, there's also workplace power. This past week I was re reading a blog article uh, from Business Insider, and they were talking about seven types of power that operate at work, operate at the workplace, and they were really sort of uh, springboarding off of some work that was done in the early 60s on this. But these were some of the types of power they mentioned. Maybe you can uh, you know, resonate with this. Uh, one would be just legitimate power, a boss or a board that's over someone. Another would be coercive power, coercive power. Have you ever felt threatened in your workplace? Another form of power would be expert power or informational power. That is the person that's perceived to have, you know, the expert gifts or inside information that helps things move forward. Or it might be connection power, someone that's gained favor with the boss. All these different ways that power operates at the workplace. But there's also personal power. It might be positive in the sense that the kind of power that we use to develop lives that are healthy, to pursue things like love and meaning and understanding. But there's also negative power. Power that dominates in relationships. Passive aggressive power. Force. I mean, we could go on and on about all the different facets of power, but the Christian faith teaches that beneath all and any of those forms of power, there is one and it is spiritual power. Spiritual power is actually more fundamental. But many times we don't realize it until we are powerless. Until you've been brought to a place of real powerlessness, we actually don't seek out spiritual power. You know, Jesus went to the poor and had such success in his ministry with the poor not just because uh, they were people that were desperate or maybe weren't educated. That's what a, an arrogant modern person might think. No, the reason he had such success is because they had come to terms with the hard fact of powerlessness that many times self-sufficient people don't get to until they're on their deathbed. And so, how do we get to a place before that point where we begin to reckon with the power that we need for renewal? Israel, in this passage, is facing powerlessness in many ways. They've lost their land. They've lost their nation. They've lost their throne. They've been exiled by God because of their disobedience, first under the conquering power of the Babylonians, and at the time of this passage, the Persians. They are in a state where they feel powerless. And yet, because God doesn't forget His promises... He moves in the heart of the king of Persia, and he allows them limited freedom. He allows them to go back and rebuild Jerusalem and their temple. 
Now, it's hard for us to grasp the significance of that. The significance of what the holy city and the temple meant to them. Nothing short of God's favor and power and presence in their lives. And so you can imagine the hope that they were beginning to feel as they were gone back. The resurgence of hopefulness, of power, except they hit a brick wall. (laughs) Not literally, but figuratively. The work stalls because of opposition. It doesn't move on year after year. They look at it. Have you ever had an unfinished project in your life, right? Like year after year, it doesn't get done. It just depresses you. It starts to do a number on your hope. It starts to do a number on their hope. They begin to say, what about all those earlier prophecies that talked about this time being a time of great transformation? They're still on the sidelines of world significance. Everyday life is hard. Taxes are high. One theologian put it this way. It was easy for the people to conclude that theirs was a day of small things in which God was absent. Faithful obedience was viewed as useless. It made more sense to pursue the best life possible in spite of the present difficulties. I wonder if that echoes with you at all. It did with me when I heard it. Where you basically say, you know, my faith doesn't seem to be doing a whole lot in my life right now. Maybe it's just better for me to eke out the best life I can come up with on my own. Maybe that's where you're at right now. But God doesn't want Israel to stay there, so he commissions a prophet, Zechariah, to come and bring a message of renewing power, of unconventional power, and of outperforming power. Unconventional power and outperforming power. Let's look at those two things. First of all, unconventional or non-ordinary power. Now, more and more, science is developing unconventional sources of energy. You know, for years now, we've heard about cars that can run on corn oil. Or maybe you're familiar with the term fracking, right? where they can drill deep into the earth and shoot this high-powered water mixture at shale rock and gas is released. Or maybe you've heard of blue power, saltwater power. You know, it takes a lot of power to remove salt from water. So the reverse is true. By putting salt water into fresh water, power is released. There's even power that's gained from sewage. Have you ever used fertilizer in your garden? Norway is taking this a step higher. They're seeking to run public buses on human sewage. The phrase is poo power. (laughs) Believe it or not. I guess guess in Norway, you know, when they say uh, our public transportation stinks, you know, they won't mean it literally. All these sources of power, unconventional. God wants to point Israel to an unconventional source of power in their life. He wants to draw them there. And he does it by setting their sights on the rebuilding of the temple, which is referenced in this vision here. Then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, the temple. His hand shall also complete it. Now, in ancient days... When there was a building of a temple, often it was the king that laid the foundation stone. 
He went and laid it down. Now, it's not dissimilar from when we might have a project and the mayor comes and, you know, tosses out the first shovel full of dirt. It's a celebration to have the leader. For Israel, it was a painful reminder of their powerlessness because they didn't have a king up there. They had a governor doing it. That's like when you might expect the president to come and kick off some big initiative or event. Instead, you get a low, low level cabinet member. It was a public embarrassment to them. But it's because they were focusing on the office of Zerubbabel and not the lineage, not the line. You see, Zerubbabel wasn't just an ordinary governor. He was a governor from the line of David. He was was a descendant of the great king of David. Israel hadn't known a greater king and a greater kingdom than David. And so God, in having Zerubbabel lay that foundation stone, is saying, I have not forgotten my promise. What promise? One of the great promises that David was clinging to was that God would always have someone from his line on the throne. This is what David asked, and this is what God provided. And so he says through the the prophet Zechariah, don't you see I have fulfilled that promise? But he gives them something even more in the center of the vision, and that is the vision of the golden lampstand that you heard read, or what we might call a menorah. Uh, Most all of us are familiar with uh, the golden lampstand that Jewish families use to celebrate Hanukkah. The golden lampstand that, you know, appears and is the center and a symbol of something. And it goes way, way back. Here in this vision, it's actually a super menorah. Seven lamps, seven spouts. You have an olive oil bowl underneath it and two olive trees. That's what we see. What does that golden lampstand represent? Three things. It represents, number one, holy presence. If you go back to the original lampstand, you'll notice it was at the time of Moses where God said, I want you to craft this thing, and I want you to put it in the holy place in the tabernacle where God met with the Israelites. It signified holy presence. Second of all, it signified enduring light. In the holy place, there weren't any windows. And so God would have them light the lampstand. But in Exodus and Leviticus, he commanded that flame should never go out. You know, you've heard of eternal flames before, like the flame at the tomb of the unknown soldier or at the JFK uh, gravesite in Arlington. This idea of an enduring light that would continue. But thirdly, it represented immovable faithfulness. And the other visions that Zechariah has, the images are moving, but in this one you have this stationary golden lampstand and these olive trees that are just right there in the center. You bring all that together, holy presence, enduring light, immovable faithfulness, and you realize this promise is much bigger than any human descendant of David's line. You see, Zerubbabel, the governor, is actually a symbol of something greater, a greater descendant of David that would come later, the Messiah. It is a symbol of the Messiah who would come and be all power to his people, who the New Testament identifies as Jesus Christ. God with us, the holy presence of God, the light of the world, 
the one in the book of Revelation who is on the, the horse, the rider, with faithful and true at his side. This is the one who will fulfill these promises of power for God's people. The solution for Israel's powerlessness is the same solution for us today. We need more than conventional power to transform our lives. We need the very power of the Son of God. Listen, how can you change yourself more than yourself? I mean, at best, you'll become, you know, really great at human limitations. I mean, at best, right? You'll reach human limitations and be really good at it. How do you go beyond that? We have all these films these days that put before us, you know, superheroes and fantasy. It's just our desire to be something more than we are. But again, power comes in unconventional ways. Speaking of one of those films, if you've seen the first Captain America film, you know the story is that Steve Rogers is this, you know, young guy who's basically sickly and weak. This is before he transforms into Captain America. And he desperately wants to serve in the military, but he's just too weak and sick, and he gets rejected everywhere. But finally, you know, he gets this opportunity because of a special mission, and they bring him into the training, and there's this moment in the training where uh, the commander, wanting to test the soldiers, throws a fake hand grenade on the ground, and all the sort of strong guys clear and try to save themselves, and this young, weak guy dives on the hand grenade. And you see within this weak person is an unconventional power. You get a picture of Jesus Christ there. Jesus Christ was a conventional, average-looking guy. That's what the prophets tell us. He came from an average town. He came from an average family. He, came, he practiced a conventional, ordinary trade. And even the way that he saved was unconventional. Jesus came in weakness. In fact, Jesus saved in such a way, it was sort of this double-sided thing. On one side, he looked so ordinary, and what he did so was so ordinary, no one thought it could be God's saving Messiah and power. I mean, instead of riding in on a great military horse, he rides in on a donkey, an animal of peace. Instead of crushing his enemies under his feet, he washes his enemies' feet. Instead of coming in as a great ruler, he shows up as an atonement a sacrifice for sin. These things that people didn't expect, but it was through those conventional forms that he was doing remarkable work. He was saving us. He was saving all that would put their hope in him. But Israel had wanted something that was more worldly, just like you and I. I mean, you know, where do, where do you and I look for power? We hope it'll come in the form of a job title. It'll come in the form of great achievements, maybe. It'll come in the form of networking, if we can connect with the right people, or, or for our children, if I can just get my kid into the right school or line them up with the best opportunities, or as a nation, if our market can be strong and our military can be strong, all these conventional forms of power that everybody looks to and hopes in. 
But God is calling people of faith to look beyond that, to say in the end they won't be what you and I need to renew personally or to see renewal in our city ultimately. It'll be status quo. Here he says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, the Lord of hosts. It's when the spirit of God enlightens our eyes. It's when the spirit of God takes from Christ and applies it to your life that renewing power really begins to take off. What greater title could you have other than a royal son and daughter of the Most High. There is no greater title. I don't care what your job is. I don't care how lowly you think it is. There is no greater title that you could want than a son or daughter of the Most High. What greater achievements could you hope to accomplish than those that Christ has achieved for you? The fact that he has made people that are sinful and in many ways shameful, holy and blameless before God's sight. That he would achieve a salvation where you and I would become inheritors with the Son of God. The meek shall inherit the earth, where all the blessings of God would come to us. What greater, what greater networking? You're networked into the Trinity, into the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. God brings you into the inner circle of his fellowship and relationship. These are the things that the Messiah does for people. But many times we don't see it until God strips away the conventional forms of power. It's not until he strips away your expertise and smarts that you go looking for his power. It's not unless maybe he takes away someone who was like faithful and movable presence in your life. Maybe it was a grandparent. Maybe it's a parent until he pulls you out of the great networking circles where you're not hanging around the great people anymore. It's not until he strips us of those things that you and I begin to go, I need something more. I need holy presence, the light of wisdom. Unconventional power is what we're talking about. But it's not only that, it's outperforming power that he brings in two ways. Mountains that are mountain-sized difficulties are brought down to size. And small things grow kingdom big. Let's unpack those two things. You see this verse here, Who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You shall become a plain, and he shall bring, bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Now, this language of mountains being turned into plains was a favorite of the prophets. For instance, in the prophet Isaiah, this is what you hear. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be laid low. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, if you're familiar with the Gospels, you may have caught where that came from. That prophecy was used when John the Baptist was declaring Jesus was coming. That very verse was used. The mountain-leveling Messiah was coming. He would make rough places smooth. As we hear Zechariah, it's the same promise. But the problem is, you and I, 
make mountains out of molehills, as the old saying goes, don't we? We might see our debt is a mountain. I've got this mountain of debt. That is the mountain in my life. Or maybe the mountain you're trying to scale is some career thing. And on top of it is this, you know, big giant that's stopping you from accomplishing your plans. Maybe it's the mountain of an illness that you deal with and you think, I'm never going to climb up this mountain. And I don't want to minimize those things and I don't want to say that God isn't going to help us with things like that. He's in the business of doing that. Maybe it's a mountain of loneliness and you think, there is no way I'm going to ever get over this mountain and not feel lonely. He cares about those things. But I want to suggest to you, those aren't the real mountains we're facing. The only real mountain you face is being cut off from the one who has renewing power. That's the only real mountain you face is to be cut off from the God who can bring mountains down to size. Mountains like self-reliance, as Mike prayed earlier, where the real mountain in my life is the fact that I keep trying to scale mountains. I just keep trying to do it myself. Self-reliance, self-sufficiency. We're the ones that are actually cutting ourselves off from the power of God. My goals, my dreams even, can be the mountain that separates me from God's power. Or maybe it's a mountain of unbelief whereby we are blind to God's activity in the everyday. Our unbelief stops us from seeing how God is active today. Did you notice how God was active on your behalf today? Did you notice anything that he did? If you, if you don't have an answer, yeah, I can say, you know, he did this for me today. He met me here at this place. I saw him moving here. We're blinded by a mountain of unbelief. And the greatest mountain we face is the mountain of our own moral failings in sin. True guilt that all of us have before God. An unreconciled relationship with God is what I'm talking about. There's a mountain that stands between you and him. And the gospel tells us that his son came for the express purpose of climbing up the mountain called Golgotha and assuming a cross and taking the avalanche of judgment upon himself. All the judgment that you and I would deserve, God sent him for that purpose that it would be brought down, that you could ascend the mountain of the Lord, like the psalmist said, that you could walk up to that mountain, the mountain of God. I mean, you might remember back in the book of Exodus where God appeared on the great mountain of Sinai. And he had to warn the people. He said, Moses, you need to warn them. I'm going to warn you again. Don't even come near. Don't touch the mountain. If you touch the mountain, you will die. And what he was trying to teach them was, my holy presence isn't something that you just sort of glide into. I mean, if we wouldn't glide into the presence of an earthly ruler that way or someone we regarded as a great saint, why in the world would we think we could come into God's presence just like that? I mean, that's one of the fatal flaws of pluralism today. It sounds very accepting, except it brings God basically down to appear. We talked about this last week, about the way postmodernism makes the self everything. It's even made God myself. 
Now my voice is God's voice. And so in Christ, the mountain comes down and we come into the presence of God. And we find where real power is. And you heard it read in our New Testament reading. And if you have a bulletin, I want you to turn back there. Because it is really a chain of spiritual power. First of all, Paul says that he prays, he prays to the Father. Now, I read that verse this week, and I had to stop on the word Father. Because I thought to myself, God is my dad. God in heaven is my Papa, my Abba. We have a Father. But he says before the Father, that according to the riches of the Father's glory, His riches, I pray that you would be grant, grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. In the deepest part of who you are, God places His Holy Spirit's power for transformation. So, why? It isn't just power so that you could just run out there and do stuff. And we often bypass this. What he says is so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. That power so that you might be then fixated on, the, on Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit, one of his primary jobs is to be a floodlight, not just an energy source, but a floodlight to show all the treasures that you find in Jesus Christ. It might be that floodlight works where you're here looking into the Christian faith and for the first time you come to see who Jesus really is. Or it may be that that flight light shines and Jesus isn't just the Jesus of your storybook Bible, but you begin to see all this work. He's the prophet, priest, and king of your life. So that Christ would dwell in our heart through faith. That we would be able to say, I put my trust in you. But it doesn't even stop there. Where does the power come from? I want you to see this. This power would come so that Christ would dwell in our heart through faith. So you, with all together with the saints, and it takes all of us together, we can't do it just by ourselves, that we together would have strength to comprehend how much he loves us. That's where the power is, my friends. There was no way that you will be a powerful Christian if you don't also believe that God loves you so much. That's what he says, that you might know the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of God's love. And so you would be filled with all the fullness of God. And again, we need one another for it. God's love is sort of like a panorama. You know, it's like imagine us on the mountain of God's love and, you know, what, and we form a circle. I mean, from my vantage point, you know, I can see this. I can see this part of his love, but then I hear someone else go, I see this vista of his love. And then I see someone behind me go, I see his love this way. That's the only way that love gets big enough and powerful for you and I that begins to change us. We become, as the Apostle Paul would say, super conquerors in Romans 8. Why? Because of the love of God that won't separate us. That's what makes you a super conqueror. And it's not just that we would see it, we would know it. This little verse saying that the people will shout and affirm grace, grace, when they see the foundation being laid is not that I just hear about God's love, but I can see it, I can acknowledge it. But it leads to this last point as well. Small things grow kingdom big. Israel 
had resigned itself to believe that God does big things for other people, but not for them. They had cruised into a day of small things. I don't know if any of you ever watch Modern Family, but, you know, uh, Phil, Phil Dumphy, right? Uh, and Phil is the, the father of one of the families, and I, how do you even describe this guy? I can't even describe him, but it's this, uh, he has this book, book of philosophy, okay, his philosophies. And he gives it to his daughter, Haley. She's heading off to college. And one of them says, the most amazing things that can happen to a human being will happen to you if you just lower your expectations. I mean, that's, we laugh because we know that's how we live. I'll just lower my expectations. That's how I'll be happy. You know, young people have high expectations, not for me. The only prophecy we live by is the self-fulfilling prophecy that things won't get better for us. I won't really change. You know, the city won't really change. We tell ourselves that. The script we live by is the status of the cultures. Rather, the script we live by is the, the uh, status quo of the culture. So basically, we're saying to God, God, just make me happy like the culture says I should be happy. That's what I... Just give me that. We settle for that. Or we might find ourselves belonging to the church of small things. A member of the church of small things. You know, I was spending time with one of our uh, families this past week, and as we sat together, we were talking about, you know, all the challenges of living in the city. I mean, you know, it's, it's transitional. People come and go. Um, rents are high. It's been a violent year. I mean, you could go on the list of all the reasons it's hard to live in the city. And then they said this, and I've been thinking about it since we talked. They said, we've experienced all those hard things, but I've got to say this. They said, we have had an unprecedented spiritual experience living in this city. One we would have never had living somewhere else living back home, living where else we would have. We have been changed and come to know community and God's promise and God's mission in a way that we would have never known it. You know, it may be this is the year where God breaks a cycle in your life that you've been struggling with for decades. Do you believe he can do that? Or Counterintuitive, do you believe in such a transitional city that one of your richest relationships of your life might start here? It might be here. Or do you believe that we doing ministry in this city along with our brothers and sisters in other churches, that God could do such a ministry that if we packed our bags and left, the city would go, no, please come back. Because of the effect of your having in the city. A day of great things, not a day of small things. When Jesus rose from the dead, he wasn't saying, now I will build the church of small things. And so we want to be a church of big things, not big showy things, because Jesus said that a small mustard seed is how the kingdom of heaven grows. It's going to be small things. You spend time with someone and you listen just a little bit longer, ends up being a really big thing. You show up to tutoring again, again, ends up being a really big thing. You go to your job tomorrow with an attitude that I'm going to serve and I'm going to bless my coworkers, even though they drive me crazy. 
or even though they're out for my demise, ends up being a big thing. This is the church that God is building. So what is your renewing power? Let's pray. God, we thank you. We're asking that you might set our eyes on you, you, the holy presence, you, the immovable faithfulness, you, our enduring light. Oh, Lord, through Christ, would you show us? In his name, amen.